Hello, and welcome to episode 118 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Perrin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Attack Submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore of Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other postings. How are you this afternoon, Bill? I'm doing great. I hope our listeners know how much work it is to keep this cadence of one episode a week going, particularly for you, the historian, Seth. I'm just a color commentator here. <laughs> You're the John Madden of the, of the, of the yeah, team. Yeah, John Madden. Yeah, that's, right. that's why they play the game. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, so, it, is, it is a ton a of work. work. It is. Yeah, it yeah. Is. And, but, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm very heartened by the reaction we're getting mm-hmm. from listeners and viewers. Um, some great, great questions. Yeah. And we were, just of our listeners, we are calling back our experts. I mean, Seth is the expert, but I mean, questions on episodes that John Parshall did, mm-hmm. and we get John's input uh, in response to those questions that come up that people are entering on the YouTube page or on the um, whatever other page. So it, you do get an opportunity to engage, re-engage with our guests by asking these questions. And so the guests seem to be enjoying it, and we, we certainly are too. We are. And, and, you know, and, and we get a lot of comments on the YouTube side of things mm-hmm. and, and those are answered by either Bill or myself. Um, it's about 50 50. I think it is about mm-hmm. who answers what basically whoever gets to it first. Whoever gets to it first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It is who is we who try to be responsive. Yeah. yeah. And I know we've probably missed a few here and there and it's, it was That's not right. intentional. It's, it's, you know, sometimes. Things just slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. That uh, it is what it is. But uh, yeah, well, we passed twenty thousand views, listens, and we're very grateful for all of the supporters um, for doing that. Obviously, this is a passion for us. We mm-hmm. don't get compensated in any way. We get no <laughs> advertisement revenue, so you don't have to listen to ads. And uh, and so it's, it's remarkable that we've had that many um, views. In the yeah, short of time, it, it is, and it, and it, and as you said, it, it's it's heartening to know that that the work that we put in, and we did abundantly clear, we both do put in a lot of time in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, especially if you watch some of the videos and the, you know, you see the pictures and the archival footage, and it's it's very clear that with it's you know we're that's, not just throwing this together. We're, that's we're all working you, on Seth. It. Yeah, that's well, you. But but still, it's 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 a team effort, and we're working mm-hmm. hard on this. And and um, I'm glad that people are enjoying it because we enjoy doing it. If we didn't, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Exactly. I assure you. <laughs> but it yeah, is exactly what it is. Right. Our days are full. We don't need more activities. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Good. So, what are we going to talk about this week, Seth? Well, this week we're gonna we're gonna dive into some more. Uh, ship action, some 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 gunfights offshore on Guadalcanal, and specifically Guadalcanal gun- campaign. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And specifically, we're going to talk about the Battle of Cape Esperance. This is the second major surface action off the coast of Guadalcanal. And uh, if you recall, back in our episode talking about Savo Island, that being the first, it was a bit of a debacle, shall we say, for the United States Navy. Uh, this is our chance as the U.S. Navy to get a little bit of revenge on the Japanese. Uh, on the night of October 11th, 1942, the Japanese sent two separate task forces heading in the direction of Guadalcanal. The first task force was yet another troop-slash-resupply convoy. The second task force, separate from the first yet in the same area at the same time, was a bombardment group assigned to shell Henderson Field. The Japanese at this time, rulers of the seas around Guadalcanal, at least at night anyway, did not believe that an American task force would be in the area. 
latest intelligence told them that the Americans were off to the north and were not anywhere near the beaches. Their intelligence was wrong. So, Bill, let's set up the the stage here. We're in October 1942 now. Mm -hmm. Um, Savo Island is, I don't want to say a distant memory because it's the first thing in, you know, American surface commanders' minds. Uh, Eastern Solomons has happened. You know, we've we've done Tenaru River. Edson's Ridge is over with. You know, the the campaign is progressing. We're doing well on the on on the island, but it's at the sea on the seas. We're still, you know, it's touch and go. What uh, what is the U.S. Navy looking like at this time? What are we what are we looking like? Savo Island might be distant in the temporal realm, but in physical realm, geographic, it was well within view of the ships that were steaming in this area. They, it's right, they're in Savo Sound. The Tokyo Express is still resupplying troops and supplies to Guadalcanal because as you, as we said in a previous episode, Emperor Hito, Hirohito has taken a personal interest in kicking the Americans off of the island of Guadalcanal. So this Tokyo Express is coming down the slot, is what we called it, past Savo Island in the Savo Sound, and essentially trying to land troops and materiel at the northwest tip, the, which is called the near Cape Esperance on the island of Guadalcanal, which is where this battle gets its name from. Now, we had surface ships in the area, and we had the Marines were still struggling to keep deflecting the Japanese reinforcing troops. And the American army decides, you know, Admiral Gormley, who's still in charge at this point, Vice Admiral Robert Gormley, maybe you need some help from the army. And so (laughs) that's kind of the introduction for this thing. The the interesting thing, though, is the battle tactics of the day, even in 1942, were still derived from sailing ship tactics hundreds of years old. And so when you, in the old days of sailing ships, of course, the the ships sailed, I was going to say steamed, but sailed in a line line of formation called a battle line, Mm -hmm. where the ships are in a single file. And that aided two things. The first thing it aided was communication between ships because they would use signal flags primarily as the standard mean of communications. Uh, so you needed to see each other. So they would steam in a line, they would sail on sail in a line. And the second thing it aided with is gunfire. Remember in old sailing ships, whether it's a brigantine or a man of war, the guns pointed a beam outward, port and starboard. So if you wanted to, the most effective gunfire would be where your beam is kind of pointed at the enemy's bow or stern. So they can't bring their broadsides to bear, but you can bring your broadsides to bear. Now, if you have a line of formation, um, a battle line, whether you have a bunch of ships in a single file where all of those ships can bring their broadsides to bear against the enemy's bow, then that's called crossing the T because the enemy is in the vertical line of the T, and you hopefully are in the horizontal line of the T, where all of the friendly ships can bring their broadsides to bear and destroy the enemy ships. Now, this makes sense in the days of sailing because you don't have to get your range right. 
It's not so important to get the range right on your gunfire when you're firing down in enfilade, which means it does, you know, you're firing down a line. If you fire too far, you're going to hit the ship behind the ship that you were aiming at. Right. You're going to hit somebody. So this enfilade fire is really important. Crossing the T was still a tactic in the 1940s because we still had battleships, cruisers, and destroyers with guns fore and aft. So in order to train those guns and not fire at your own superstructure directly aft or directly forward, you always wanted to gauge the enemy with a broadside, even in the 1940s. So again, battleship skippers and admirals in particular still use the crossing the T tactic. And it was the optimum configuration and battle positioning against an enemy who's also using guns to fire. So all of that is background, long-winded background, wasn't it, Seth? <laughs> no, but it's it, it's it's very, very important because as the viewers slash listeners will understand here in just a few minutes, that comes to play here. But just as you said, that was a tactic that really every Navy, you know, whether they had carriers or not, and obviously, you know, we and the Japanese do, but if it's a gunfight, Mm -hmm. That's what you want to do. You want to get that maximum. You want to get superior firepower. You want to, you know, firepower advantage on that enemy. And the best way to do that is exactly what you said. Cap that T, you know, give the timeout signal there. Cap mm -hmm. the T and, and, and you're getting all your guns, or at least the vast majority of them, on that enemy. Yeah. And it's, Interestingly, it's, sorry to interrupt, but <laughs> if it's a destroyer torpedo fight, remember destroyers, primary weapons were torpedoes, not their puny guns relative to a battleship. Right. Um, it, crossing the T is not a good tactic because right. now you're trying to fire down the throat, your torpedoes down the throat of the enemy rather than hitting the enemy broadside with a torpedo and have a better chance of hitting it. So if you're destroyers later, we're going to talk about Leyte Golf trying to attack the enemy. You kind of want to be parallel to them, not, yeah. not crossing their T. But in this case, where the guns are the primary weapons, Yes, crossing the T is the right tactic. And this this battle, in specifically Cape Esperance, this is a gunfight. I mean, yeah, there are torpedoes launched, but this is a gunfight. Right. This is a good old-fashioned U.S. Navy, Imperial Japanese Navy, shoot them up gunfight. And there's a huge difference between this and Savo Island. Mm. We were prepared for this one. So to give and, a little... And we, and we compensated for many of the lessons we learned at Savo. Absolutely. So that's really, really important. Go ahead. That, we'll talk about that. Yeah, those are going to pop up here in just a few minutes. Mm -hmm. we, you know, to give a little background on why this event transpired, why it even happened in the first place, as you were saying in the beginning, the, the Japanese are running resupply operations as often as they can to the island of Guadalcanal. You know, as I said again, Edson's Ridge is over with. Um, you know, we've we've fought the Japanese along the Matanakau River now a couple of times. Mm -hmm. The Japanese are building their forces for their decisive battle with the Japanese. It's all about the decisive battle, their decisive battle on land, which is going to occur in a couple weeks, you know, on land, what will be known as the battle for Henderson field. Anyway, they're bringing people, they're bringing supplies, they're bringing ammunition, very little food, but they're bringing stuff to Guadalcanal. And not every time, but almost every time they send a large convoy, it was almost always at night, and it was usually protected by cruisers and destroyers. Mm -hmm. This is no different. Um, this one is 
under the command, overall command of Admiral Gunichi Makawa. And those astute listeners will recognize that name because he's the guy that came down to Savo on the night of August 8th and 9th and kicked the living crap out of the U.S. Navy with his cruisers and destroyers. Um, Makawa is an overall command of this operation. He's not at sea, but he's an overall command of this operation and, and is set for the night of October 11th, 12th, 1942. Mm -hmm. uh, his field commander, if you will, is a guy named Rear Admiral Aritomo Goto, or Goto Aritomo, depending on if you wanted the American uh, setup or the Japanese setup. Right. Um, he's his bombard Goto's bombardment force is similar to what Makawa had at uh, Savo minus one cruiser. So he's only got three heavy cruisers and two destroyers. Um, and his job is to a protect that convoy B really his main job is to go and shell Henderson field. Now the Japanese are doing this, not every night. If you talk to Marines that were on the Island, they said it was every night. It wasn't every night, but it was often, it was often enough for those guys to feel like it was every damn night, but this is going to be theoretically one of those nights where the cruisers and Japanese destroyers start lobbing shells at the Marines on Henderson field. Now, American intelligence has picked up on the Japanese plans to build forces for an all-out assault on the airfield. We talked about this in the last episode with Dave Holland. Um, you know, realizing that the Marines are hard-pressed to hold out against another massive assault, you mentioned this, the United States Army starts to get into the fray here. And let me be clear, is that not that the Army didn't want to go to Guadalcanal. I mean, and again, every soldier was not like, yay, let's go to Guadalcanal. <laughs> <No>. but, <laughs> but but it was a matter of opportunity. It was a matter of resources. It was a matter of material. Could we get them there? It wasn't yeah. that we didn't want them there. It wasn't that Vandergriff said, no, the hell, stay out. It, it was quite the opposite. It was, can we get them there? Well, this is a time and they campaign that we can get them there. And mm. the forces that are available are... Uh, I'm sorry. Um, let me let me get back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Knowing that there, there's another assault coming, uh, the United States Army uh, General Millard Harmon, CEO of the U.S. Army in the South Pacific, convinces Admiral Gormley that the Marines need some help, and they do. Let's be 100% mm -hmm. abundantly clear. They do. Uh, the Army uh, sends their 164th Infantry Regiment, which is part of the AmeriCal Division, to Guadalcanal to reinforce the Marines ashore. The date for that reinforcement is set for October 8th. Now, this is really only the second time that the Marines ashore get any kind of major reinforcement, the first being when the 7th Marines in Chesty Puller arrive mm -hmm. in September, and now this. Um, to protect and, that, go ahead. No, what I was going to say is that my uncle was part of that AmeriCal division that went into Guadalcanal. And so this, this bit of it has a very personal aspect for me. And I, so I've always been aware of the existence of the AmeriCal Division, mm -hmm. but I never understood why they were called the AmeriCal Division. It was because they were formed, they're the only American Army Division to be established outside the United States. Mm -hmm. And they were formed in 1942 in response to the Pearl Harbor attack in New Caledonia. Mm -hmm. So AmeriCal is America Caledonia. That's where that comes from. An interesting... I remember being aware of AmeriCal Division during the Vietnam War when I was yes. a teenager. And so I'm a child and a teenager because my uncle would say, that's my division, the AmeriCal Division. And I think that's an odd name. Why are they called that? And it wasn't until years later did I understand it was because of the new Caledonia connection. And true to form, my uncle formed up in New Caledonia and moved to Guadalcanal from New Caledonia. He had wonderful memories of New Caledonia 
horrible memories of Guadalcanal. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet his memories of Guadalcanal were not so rosy. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to, just to get a little bit off topic, talking about these guys, you know, we're going back to the Marines here just to, just briefly. You know, Marines are fiercely protective of their legacy, and rightfully yeah. so. And I remember I knew a ton of guys who were in the 1st Marine Division on Guadalcanal, a ton of them. And one of my good friends, Sid Phillips, told me, I asked him one time, and I already knew the answer, but it, this was for a video interview, so I wanted to get the reaction. I asked him, I said, you know, Dr. Sid, I said, were you, what did you guys think when the Army came ashore? Was there any kind of, you know, animosity or rivalry? And he started laughing, and he told me, he says, Seth, he says, honestly, he says, we didn't care if it was the little sisters of the poor, as long as they were carrying <laughs> rifles. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think another kind of funny point here, and you worked on the miniseries, The Pacific. I did. Um, There's that scene in the Pacific where when the army comes ashore, they got better rifles than the Marines. Yes. And, and so the Marines end up trying to steal army rifles, which, and by the way, that's all true. Oh, yeah. So, 100% true. The Army had Garands, had M1s, yeah. and the Marines didn't. They yeah. they carried Springfields. And fun fact, when I was in boot camp in 1974, the rifles we carried around were those, I think, 1917 Springfields. Mm-hmm. We weren't even, the Navy wasn't even rich enough to be carrying M1 Garands in 1970. <laughs> At the Academy, we carried M1s, but, but in boot camp was the Springfields. But anyway. <laughs> We, so, we're way off track. So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get back on track. We'll get we'll get back on here. So the convoy that's bringing the one sixty fourth in has to be protected. Mm-hmm. Um, Admiral Gormley assigns a cruiser destroyer group under the command of Admiral Norman Scott. This is a name we'll hear several times, not only in this episode but in future. Uh, Norman Scott to protect him. Scott's forces include two heavy cruisers two light cruisers, and five destroyers. And we'll get into all the ship names here in just a little bit. Uh, Scott's orders are to protect the convoy, and once the army is delivered, which obviously they are, patrol the waters off Guadalcanal, intercept, and then destroy anything that attempts to move in. Pretty simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> make yeah, make sure those simple. guys yeah, make <laughs> sure those guys get there. Once they get there, shoot anything that isn't flying yeah. the stars and stripes. Um. Admiral Scott knew that his mission carried with it two tasks aside from the destruction of any Japanese force. One was to develop a night surface doctrine. And this goes back exactly to what you were saying a few minutes ago, Bill, about the lessons learned at Savo Island. Mm -hmm. We had no nighttime naval surface doctrine. We didn't have it. And his job was partially to develop this doctrine either via battle or via training at Mm -hmm. night. His second task was if he had the opportunity to exact revenge for Savo Island. Now, he didn't go out there with the sole task of, oh, we're going to, you know, revenge. He was going out there to do a job, and his job was to sink anything that came out there. And if it turned out in their favor, yay, hey, revenge, here it is. As far as doctrine is concerned, uh, Scott was aware that he and his units lacked any real experience at all and tra- or training in night actions. Uh, therefore, his plan of action, should it be needed, was very, very simple. It, Scott was very, very in tune with his people. He was very in tune with his vessels. He was very in tune with, frankly, everything. Um, his plan was to simply steam in a column with destroyers ahead in the van and his cruisers in the middle. <laughs> that's it. And just steam in a column. Keep destroy. it simple. That's it, man. Keep it simple. Simplicity stupid. is not the, the way the Japanese would come at a battle plan. No. Sometimes it's the best way. Exactly. And this this would be one of those times. Mm-hmm. Uh, destroyers would illuminate any targets after radar contact, uh, fire torpedoes, and allow the cruisers to concentrate on the enemy heavy units. 
Simple. Easy, mm-hmm. easy peasy. Scott chose the USS San Francisco. This is the first time you hear the name of this ship, and it certainly will not be the last. The USS San Francisco. This is CA thirty-eight heavy cruiser. As his it was flagship. the only heavy cruiser in the in the in this group, right? Uh, no, there this was another formation? one. Salt Lake City. Salt, Salt Lake, Lake City. City. Okay, yeah, that's Salt right. Lake City was in there. Um, anyway, he 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 chooses San Francisco, and this is this is where he's a little bit kind of wonky with his decision here because pre-war. And Bill, you can attest to this, you know, task force commanders are going to choose the larger vessel. And it's not necessarily because of stature, but I mean, a larger vessel can hold an animal staff. They can do a lot of different things that smaller vessels can. In hindsight, which is, of course, 2020, they say he should have chosen one of the smaller, one of the lighter cruisers, the Helena specifically. Yeah, CL rather than the CA. Right. And he chose he chooses San Francisco because, you know, she's a bigger ship and she's got you know, Admiral's quarter, she's, she's more appropriate for his staff. That's right. And so she can, you know, he has the, the, the flag communication staff, the flag navigation staff, and all those and better communication equipment to kind of coordinate all of this action that's going on with the other ships. The one thing it doesn't have mm-hmm. is the better sensors. Exactly. And it's because of that, it doesn't have the better situational awareness. And, and so we can't plot the enemy ships as well as the light cruisers could, because they had a better surface radar. Exactly, the radar that the that the Frisco and Frisco had radar. Let's be clear; she she did. She had what was called SC Sierra Charlie SC radar, which was basically last year's model. Let's yeah, just, put, just put it lower that way. frequency, so it had better range, but it had worse discrimination when targets were closer together. Right, a better radar for in close in fighting was the SG, Sierra Golf radar, which the light cruisers had. Right. Helena yeah. and Boise. Helena and Boise did have the SG. The SG was the 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 hotness. You know, that was that was the new stuff coming into the fleet right now. Uh and and the thing was, and this is this is key. This is key here, is that the United States and Admiral Scott were operating under the false intelligence that the Japanese actually had some radar detecting equipment aboard their ships. Where the hell this information came from, I personally do not know. I have no idea. But this is the thing. They thought that the Japanese had some sort of equipment that could detect American radar. Well, honestly, though, Seth, that's not really hard to do because it's just radio frequency detection equipment. You have to be looking at the right frequency for the right type of modulated signal. Mm -hmm. So it is actually common sense. This stuff emits and therefore it's detectable in fact it's when when you do have radar detection equipment they can detect the radar at twice the range that you can detect them with the radar because mm-hmm. the the rf energy has to go out and back mm-hmm. it goes out twice as far as it goes back so it was a legitimate concern but it was bad intel Big because the japanese weren't smart enough to know where to look in the rf spectrum to find this transmission and to, to use the radar itself to detect the presence of the American warships. Right. And as a result of this faulty intelligence, Admiral Scott ordered that the radar on the USS San Francisco that could have significantly benefited the situation that's about to unfold, he had it turned off. He ordered it to be turned off. Actually, he ordered all of the radar to be turned off. Some skippers did not comply with that order, and, <laughs> which is a good thing. Yeah, this is a very good thing. In nighttime, 
dark night, you're already blind and to turn off the one sensor that might give you some sight and advantage. Yeah, this doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And, and, And if you can fault Admiral Scott with one thing, this would probably be it. But he gets lucky. So on on October 9th and 10th, Scott was patrolling the area just north of Rennell Island. So this is, you know, near Guadalcanal, but not in the in the direct battlefield area right there. Mm-hmm. He was cruising that area specifically to stay out of the range of Japanese search planes. He did not want the Japanese to know that he was there. Um, you know, he knew that if the Japanese were coming, that more than likely our search planes, either his or those flying from Guadalcanal or Espirito Santo, would hopefully spot them before they ever spotted him. And that's exactly, mm. exactly what happened. On the 11th, search planes from Guadalcanal sighted the incoming Japanese troop reinforcement convoy and reported it as two cruisers and six destroyers. Now, again, faulty sighting, misidentification of ships. But the important thing here is that Norman Scott now knows, oh, hey, well, hell, the Japanese are indeed coming. Now, what they're coming with, he didn't know exactly, but he knew that they were coming down the slot or they would be coming down the slot. He receives this intelligence and he prepares to maneuver his ships into the Savo Island area to do battle that very night. So again, he has not been spotted. The Japanese have no earthly idea that there's an American surface force anywhere near there, but Scott knows they're coming. So this is already kind of setting up like the reverse of Savo Island. You know, the Japanese knew where we were. We didn't know where they were. This Mm -hmm. is complete opposite of that. And this is important. At at sundown, Scott orders his ships, all of them, to general quarters, determined not to be surprised by the Japanese like they were on August 8th. Now, it was abundantly clear what had happened on August 8th. You know, Admiral Scott and and others, you know, they knew what happened. They knew that it was a debacle. The United States, you know, citizenry did not, but the Mm -hmm. Navy did. We hadn't announced it yet. We kept it. Right. In fact, I... Let's see, that happened in August, mm-hmm. and then we didn't announce the sinking of those four cruisers until November, I think. Is I think right? I, don't, I don't recall off the top of my head. I, I'd yeah, have to look it up a, right now. We didn't want to give the Japanese the benefit of knowing how much damage they had done at the Battle exactly. of Savo Island. Exactly. And we didn't want to admit it to the U.S. <laughs> populace either. Mm-hmm. So, and this is another important uh, lesson learned from, so, so A, he puts his people at GQ, which is supposed to be at anyway, and, and B... What does he do, Bill? He launches his what? His search planes, basically. All the aircraft that at the Battle of Savo Island ended up on fire because Mm -hmm. of aviation gasoline that those aircraft need and and became great bright beacons that the Japanese could aim their guns at. Mm -hmm. So if those airplanes aren't there, oh, by the way, where are you going to put those airplanes? This unsinkable aircraft carrier called Henderson Field. On yep. the on island of Guadalcanal, yep. so so he offloads those airplanes because he doesn't want them to become targets like they had been at Savo, and and this pretty much becomes SOP after Savo. That's that's what American cruiser skippers do, especially when they're operating off the waters of Guadalcanal. They launch either launch them to the island or they launch them to do their actual jobs, which is search. Again, again, I did this on a PBS uh, live TV program. Where I talked about the fact those cruisers, the only reason those cruisers had those scout planes is because they were there before radar. They were, mm-hmm. you know, for, for searching for targets and for gunfire direction, right. those pilots up in the air. Once you had radar, it kind of eliminated the need mm-hmm. for those search planes because you could find the ships 
and use the radar for targeting both missions that the airplanes had previously conducted. But cruisers would carry and battleships would Mm -hmm. carry scout planes throughout the war. They were still aboard in 1945. But after that, we slowly got rid of them. This, this is a this is one of the aspects though. This is one of those times where using the search the scout planes actually does come into play because Scott doesn't mm-hmm. fully trust radar. Right. He, right. he doesn't. He does after this, but he yeah. doesn't right yet. So he kicks those scout planes off of his ships and sends them to Guadalcanal. However, he does send a couple out to do their actual job, which mm-hmm. is to search for the Japanese because he knows the Japanese are coming. He doesn't exactly know where they're coming from, and he doesn't he doesn't have a clear picture of what's coming. He just knows mm-hmm. that they're coming. So he launches his scout planes, kicks them off the ship, and then sends the other ones out to go find the Japanese. Now, uh, what couple of scout planes he still had, as I said, he launches them around 2,200 hours mm-hmm. to, to go find the Japanese. Um, and they do. They, <laughs> they do find the Japanese. They do their job. They do that very, very thing. Now, to set this up, and this is an important part of the battle, too, uh, the night was a very clear night. And by clear night, I mean, it was cloudless, pretty much. You know, the, the, there weren't any, there, there was nothing in the sky that there was virtually no moon, or, or I don't think there was any moon at all that night, specifically, mm-hmm. to add ambient light. And you would think with a clear night, you know, that the visibility would be good, but it was not. Um because there was no moon, there was, and Bill, you can speak to this far better than I, standing watch on a bridge in the moonless night in the middle of the ocean, kind of yeah, dark out try there. doing it from a submarine submerged and you're looking up just through the periscope. It's You can't see anything. Now, for the airplanes that were searching, they have bioluminescence mm-hmm. that they can they can, might be able to see if the conditions are right. But again, it's it's really, it's impossible to see that from a ship until you get within a certain range. So the airplanes might have a much better chance of sighting these enemy ships from altitude than the surface ships did just because of the bioluminescence. But I'm not sure that actually happened on this night. Well, they, they did. The, the scout planes did, or at least one of them, did see the Japanese mm-hmm. force come, whether it was bioluminescence or a shadow on the water, God knows. But they they did spot something. Right. So as a result of... Scott knows that the Japanese are coming. You know, he actually has got a pretty decent picture of what's coming at him right now. He sets his formation like this. Uh, up in the beginning, up in the van of the formation are the destroyers Fahrenholt, Duncan, and Laffey. Now, this is not the Laffey that's in South Carolina. This is the first USS Laffey. Mm-hmm. Um, followed by the cruiser San Francisco. This is his flagship. The light cruiser Boise, the heavy cruiser Salt Lake City, and the light cruiser Helena. And following Helena, bringing up the rear, are the destroyers Buchanan and McCalla. So, I mean, it's literally a straight line mm-hmm. of United States Navy vessels. Just like um, Trafalgar, mm-hmm. you would have found. Yeah, like Admiral Nelson, man. I mean, he's got yeah. one after the other, like a, like a flock this of ducks. Horatio Scott here. We're, we're talking about. <laughs> Horatio Scott, that's right. And now, again, I'd- getting to the Dark Knight. These nights, you're in the middle of the ocean, are so dark, you can't even see the horizon. You don't know where the sea ends and the sky begins. Mm-hmm. And you're looking out. You don't even know if you've got your binoculars pointed in the right direction. You don't know if you're looking down at the ocean or up at the sky because you can't see the horizon. And and just imagine that. And and just imagine knowing that somebody's coming at you to to kill try you. To, try to kill you. Yeah, Absolutely. That, yeah. That'll, that'll make the heart race just a little bit there. The Japanese were completely 
unaware. Goto's forces were completely unaware that there were American surface vessels in the area. However, there was one Japanese man of war that actually did sight Scott's forces. Mm-hmm. It was a Japanese submarine. I-26. 26. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I- Veteran of Pearl Harbor, I-26. I-26 was the submarine that launched one of the midget submarines into Pearl Harbor, and the torpedo officer on I-26 was Hashimoto, who later was commanding officer of I-28 that sunk the Indianapolis three years later. So this is a very noteworthy submarine that's that sighted these American ships. Well, talk, t- t- tell us what, what happens here. So the subs, the subs on the surface. Yeah. So t- 26 is on the surface and she's, I'm not really sure exactly what she's doing there. She's just kind of well, hanging out really. No, she, yeah. She's, she's looking for targets and the tactic of the day was once you sight the targets and you get into what you think is a reasonable firing position, you submerge and prosecute the attack submerged from periscope depth. And, and we had the same tactic, by the way. It, we, we, the Americans, did finally, eventually, 1943, wisen up when we realized, holy cow, they can't see us on the surface. We're such a small target. Why are we submerging? When you submerge, you're pretty much limiting your speed to three knots. Mm-hmm. You can't run your diesel engines. You can't go fast. And that's a huge limitation. The problem when you're submerged is the enemy can easily outrun you mm-hmm. and, and cause you to be out of firing position. But this submarine hadn't figured that out yet. The Japanese submarine force hadn't figured it out yet. So they did what everybody was doing in 1942, which is conduct the attack submerged. So you submerge, you limit it to three knots. And before you know, holy cow, they've gone what we call over the hill. Mm-hmm. which means the enemy is, is going fast. They're not going three knots. They're going 20, 22 knots. And now they're out of torpedo range. Mm-hmm. And now I can't prosecute the attack, even if I know where you are. I've got to surface again, try to run re- at, at flank speed on the surface, regain firing position. And then in those days, they probably would have stupidly submerged again and mm-hmm. then risk losing firing position. So that's what's going on here. And that, that's exactly what happens. You know, he sees them and then dives and then tries to make an attack and poof, they're gone. Scott's, I mean, they're moving. They're, you know, he's doing, I think he's doing like 22 knots. He's, he's cooking. He, he's moving out there. Mm-hmm. At 22, this goes back to the scout plane. At 2250 hours, San Francisco's scout plane, or one of them, uh, spots and reports one large, two small vessels. Now, again, to your point, Bill, it's, pitch black night mm-hmm. so he sees something how again he sees it god knows and he cannot I cannot identify exactly what types of ships they are but he sees them and reports them 16 miles from guadalcanal based on this report scott executes a turn and he knows where the japanese are coming now he knows their formation he knows their their disposition of course yep. yeah mm-hmm. he knows what's going on he executes a turn in order to cross the japanese t he knows it's a surface force coming at him. He's in charge of a surface force. This goes back mm-hmm. to what you were saying in the beginning here, Bill. He is going to execute the classic, or he's going to try and execute the classic naval maneuver, bringing all of his guns to bear on just a small portion uh, to where the Japanese can only re- respond with a small portion. In enfilade, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So the Japanese formation is led by the heavy cruiser Aoba, the Furutaka, and the Kinugasa. Now, these are... 
well, the King of Castle for sure and the AO, but we're both at Savo Island. So these are veterans of the Savo fight. Uh, the destroyers Fubuki and Hatsu, I can't even pronounce this bad boy. Hatsuyuki. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> are, are holding screen. They're yeah. on either side of the formation here. But by and large, the main targets, the cruisers, are in a column, much like Scott's cruisers, although Scott mm -hmm. is now beginning to cross the T on this Japanese formation. At around 2332 hours, so this is just shortly before midnight, Helena's we're talking local time here, right? Correct. Yes. Helena's SG radar. This is the newfangled radar. Helena's SG radar picks up the Japanese ships. Boise and Salt Lake City also picked up the Japanese on radar radar. Why didn't San Francisco pick him up? Because the radar was off because mm -hmm. he turned it off. <laughs> Scott, Scott was initially, he received, Scott is receiving, you know, Helena and mm -hmm. Salt Lake City and Boise are all saying, hey, 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 you know, there's something on our radar screens here. They're coming. Mm -hmm. We know they're here. Here they come. And they're all sending these reports in at one time. And Admiral Scott is confused by all these reports because he's getting three separate pictures of the event. And, and they're probably ships. reporting three different targets. So he doesn't know how many targets or, you know, he, it, what's called deconfliction, where you try to take the, the organic sensor information from different ships. Normally, what you do is you lay them on a maneuvering board or plotting board and say, okay, these two ships, this target that they're both reporting, that's the same guy. But now this guy over here that's being reported, it's a different ship, right? So you get some assessment of how many ships and what they're course is what their line of bearing is but he's getting a bunch of confused reports and he doesn't know how many enemy where they are exactly and so on right and to top that all off with everything you just said he doesn't trust radar to begin with yeah. <laughs> so so he's not exactly you know is this is this the japanese that these guys are seeing or is this you know a rowboat or is this savo island they're picking up mm -hmm. on radar he's not 100 percent sure and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier you know and this is very very important this is going to play a role again in another naval battle and naval battle in november on friday the 13th actually is that this generation of u.s admirals for the most part not all of them but for the most part didn't understand radar that well, they didn't trust it, and they mm -hmm. did not want to put a lot of faith into the machine because it was new. It was something it was that they unproven. hadn't been trained on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Are you gonna are you going to risk your life on this unproven technology? Right. Or are you gonna be cautious and wait for the technology to be proven before you risk the outcome of an entire battle on it? Mm -hmm. And there's arguments for both sides. There are arguments say early adopters that that master the technology are going to win. They're going to use it to their advantage and win. And then there's other arguments that say, don't let go with one hand until you've got a firm grip with the other. Right. And so we have our tried and true tactics, tried and true tactics. Don't let go of those until you know with absolute certainty that this new stuff works. And he was one of the latter guys. He was, he was, but he's a convert. <laughs> Becomes becomes a convert convert. Yeah. pretty pretty quickly because mm -hmm. he's getting all these reports in from his other cruisers and finally he's like all right fine the hell with it turn it on and he they, mm -hmm. he orders san francisco's radar to be turned on and lo and behold when her radar warms up what do they do at 23 45 hours san francisco picks up the enemy on radar and finally admiral mm -hmm. scott believes what he's being told and again it's not that he was like oh you guys are full of crap i don't believe you he just he couldn't 
put it all together in, in his mind at that time. And he, of at course, the, he picks up these ships at like a reasonable range of 20,000 yards, right? Nope. By the nope. time he flips on that radar, the Japanese are 5,000 yards away from San That's Francisco. That's two and a half miles. That's like nothing. That, right? is too- that is danger close. You know, the aviators laugh at uh, us, you know, wet warriors, the, the surface and submarine guys at the ranges that we talk about as being scary. But 2,500 yards is scary. As on a, a cruiser? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. this is not good. No. It, unless they react very quickly, which is what they do, because yeah. he's got his people prepared. He's got, mm-hmm. you know, for for his fault and not, you know, trusting the radar, he's got his boys ready to go. But again, to, to, to set the stage, most of these kinds of engagements, you want to begin firing at a range. Remember, these are cruisers, the cruisers with the six and eight inch guns, they had an effective range of 10, 12 they, the, the the rounds could go much further than that, but I'm saying effective range, 10, 12,000 yards. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so that's where you generally practice, start, you know, commence firing. Mm-hmm. And it, so if you're a crew member on a ship like the Helena and you see the enemy at 5,000 yards, you're wondering, what the heck are we doing? Yeah. And in fact, one instance says, what? What does he say? <laughs> An incident in radar plot aboard Helena. He he's watching the Japanese come. Oh, and by the way, right after San Francisco's mm. radar kicks on, lookouts on the Helena are visually seeing the Japanese now. They're that close, yep. and they're exactly but, where the radar says they're going to be. Exactly, which is another thing that allows Admiral Scott to be more confident that it actually works. Exactly. An incident in radar plot aboard Helena is watching the Japanese literally inch closer across his radar screen, turns around and asks the ship's navigator, quote, what the hell are we going to do? Board them. <laughs> yeah, so he thought we were going to be throwing out the grappling hooks here and pulling the ships together and boarding with swords. I mean, that's yeah. the kind of stuff you do when you're getting inside 2,500 yards. And so, you know, this is like you studied these ancient techniques but you never thought you were going to actually get that close to an enemy in what was then modern warfare of 1942 they're 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 very very close mm. finally again there's been no orders to open fire captain gilbert hoover who is the captain aboard uss helena he he's he sees the radar screen he's you know when i say he sees he doesn't leave the bridge but he's up on the bridge he's getting these same reports and he's finally now he can visually see the enemy at the same time he's like the hell with this i we're done he without orders from admiral scott decides to open fire at 2346 mm-hmm. at that moment helena uss helena let loose with all 15 of her six inch guns at one time, 15, six inch guns and one salvo. Boom. Yeah. That, it, that's a yeah. hell of a lot of lead. That is. And, and this is a big up check for Hoover, but and I'm not the historian here, uh, Seth, but his name sticks in my mind mm-hmm. um, with another event. We'll talk about on a future episode, something to do with Juno, yeah. but we'll, We'll talk about that at a later date. But today, Captain Hoover does a good job. Indeed, he does. He he lets he orders Helena to open fire, and she does that very thing. Aboard the Japanese cruisers, Admiral Goto finally sights the American formation at a range of now. I say finally, he mm-hmm. sighted the Americans before we ever sighted them. He sighted us at ten thousand, or he his lookout sighted us at ten thousand yards. 
However, he was concerned that the ships may be friendly, so he ordered a turn and a flash of recognition, recognition signals. As the Japanese signalman, just if ahead. I could, though, that's that the when you, when it's night like this and you see a ship on the horizon, if you're lucky enough, oftentimes you don't. What you really see is a blob. And remember that the Japanese were also trying to land forces mm-hmm. on Guadalcanal and resupply their troops. And so he's he doesn't know that we're in the vicinity, but he does know. There are other Japanese transports and other yep. ships trying to land forces on Guadalcanal, which is you're going to say, what is he, wacko? No, this actually makes sense when when it's thought of in context. Yep, perfect sense because he he didn't know, you know. I mean, he he had right. he knew as you said that there were other Japanese ships out there. He wanted to make sure that those they don't fire on his own troops, right? Mm-hmm. As Aoba, which is their flag, Japanese flagship, begins to turn to flash that message at the american ships literally she's into her turn maybe 30 seconds and helena's shells just light her up just mm-hmm. smacked a living but jesus out of her back aboard helena all her guns were firing at this time but not in salvo and this is just damn cool each turret and each gun within the turret was operating almost independently in what was called quote and this is from the helena report automatic continuous mode yeah, in infantry tactics, this is called fire at will. Mm-hmm. So basically, you to pick a target and fire as quickly as you can rather than trying to coordinate the salvo with mm-hmm. all the guns at the same time on the ship. Yep. You just load and fire. And mm-hmm. and each turret, you know, what the listener needs to understand is that is that each turret and, and to a point each gun, and, and you're talking Helen has got 15, what did I say, 15 guns? So she's got five turrets, because in each each turret there's three guns. Mm-hmm. And there's gun crews for each one of those guns. And 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 that's guys who are loading the shells, loading the powder, closing the breach, firing the weapons. It's you know, they can be controlled um together uh, together. Synchronously. But yeah. they can also be controlled locally, and, mm. and by locally, I mean within the turret if need be. And that's essentially what's going on here. That's true uh, for the triple turrets and even in a battleship with those 16-inch mm-hmm. guns. Each of those barrels, in, a, in effect, can be fired independently, or they can be fired in salvo. The, the, the Helena is doing that very thing. She's firing mm-hmm. independently, and she's not the only one, mind you, but I'm just going to focus on her because this is just damn cool. She is lighting the Japanese up with such rapidity that, I mean, the results were unbelievable. Their gun, Helena's gun crews had their weapons loaded and fired so fast that the Japanese later believed, their, their reports after the battle later believed that the Americans had a cruiser with automatic weapons. They called the American cruisers, Helena of that class, they called them the machine gun cruisers, which is just <laughs> badass, man. Six-inch guns in triple guns in a turret that are like a machine gun. That's yeah. that's some pretty good firing. That is some serious firepower. I'm going to show some footage in the video version of this that mm-hmm. of, of that class of cruiser. Unfortunately, it's them firing in broad daylight. But if you look close, you can see the muzzle flashes coming from their guns, and they are firing in this automatic continuous mode. And it really does look like automatic weapons firing. It's mm-hmm. incredible, absolutely incredible. So aboard the Salt Lake City, now we got to can't forget that there are other ships in line aside from Helena. Yeah. And then this is a heavy cruiser, not a light cruiser. So it has eight inch guns, not yeah, six this, inch guns. It's a big girl. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is a big girl. Her eight inch guns open fire on Aoba, on the Japanese cruiser Aoba, from only 4,000 yards away. 
Her second salvo smashed Aoba, and and Salt Lake City's directors report or gun directors reported no splashes, all hits. Mm-hmm. At at that close of a range, I don't I don't think you're going to miss if you tried to. So much so that there was an actual quote. I forget exactly who said it, but there was a quote. Is yeah, uh, Ensign Weems aboard the USS McCalla says. Uh, of the gunfight as he's watching it mm. unfold he says quote i felt wildly exultant joy in watching us let them have so much at such murderous range if you stop and think 2500 to 3000 yards is point blank for big guns and it is you can hardly miss even if you wanted to and they didn't want to no <laughs> <laughs> yeah no they did not what happens to all the other american cruisers in line they're all opening fire at this yeah. point no, they, Scott. Scott never really there's, gave. There is a bit of a melee here where the destroyers yes. peel off, and and we're, we're skipping some um, details on how the melee, you know, un, how things unraveled from the formation standpoint, mm-hmm. but things did not unravel from the gunfire standpoint. No, and 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 no, no, no. That's very important. That things kind of did, kind of get a little confusing there, and ships started to. Basically, yeah, yeah, they started to peel out of formation. Everybody's shooting independently. Um, San Francisco opens fire on a destroyer from 4,500 yards away at this time. The entire American column is engulfed Mm -hmm. in this gunfight. Every single ship in the American column is firing. And this is, you know, midnight-ish. And you can imagine what that must have looked like on the surface, just the the gun flashes, the tracers, everything that's going back and forth across the water. It had to be mm-hmm. both terrifying, mesmerizing, and massively confusing to anybody aboard any of these ships. The, the, the rate of fire that the American cruiser and destroyer formation is pouring on the Japanese at this time absolutely stuns the Japanese. They had no earthly clue that we could put out that much fire that quickly and that accurately. Now, granted, again, they're so close, they can hardly miss. But, I mean, these ships are taking a pounding. Three ships were burning, and of course, three Japanese ships, and of course, that makes the targeting even easier when when they're aflame. Absolutely. Despite Admiral Scott's initial mistrust of radar, which we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. He orders his ships to fire using the technology due to the fact that the fire was so heavy that he could not monitor the battle visually. He couldn't see what the hell was going on. And within minutes, all American ships were doing just that, adjusting their fire with radar, walking their shells into their targets with sniper-like accuracy. I mean, they mm-hmm. are just pounding the Japanese. And the way you do that, by the way, is on the radar, you can actually see the splash mm-hmm. if you've missed. And so all you need to do is close that splash onto the target, the radar return of the target and the radar return of the splash. You you adjust the gun fire targeting so that that splash intercepts the tar- the, the ship target. And, that, and that's precisely what is going on here. Mm. Four minutes, four minutes after opening fire, USS Boise, which is the same class as USS Helena, had expended 300 rounds from her main battery. Think about that. 300 rounds in four minutes, six-inch guns. That is some serious, serious shooting. Three Japanese ships are afire at this time. Uh, Japanese cruiser Aoba had been hit at least 24 times and was afire. Two main battery turrets were destroyed. Her main battery director was destroyed. Searchlights, catapults, and several boilers. God knows how many Japanese sailors are dead and dying and severely wounded aboard this ship because she's just taken a beating. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. The firing was so severe that Scott lost control of the events. And this, this is, you know, you can kind of understand why. I, I, we've made a big point of the volume of fire that the United States Navy ships are pouring on the Japanese right now. Again, it's nighttime. So, you know, Bill, you, you've seen gun flashes at night. It, they will temporarily it blind you, you. Yeah. much less thousands of them, you know, at yeah. one time. Well, he, he actually orders ceasefire at this point, I think. He does. And it, it's when you think you've lost control of situational awareness and you don't know where the bad guys are and where the friendlies are and you can't see anything anymore. And the radar picture is all confused because now you've got a bit, bit of a melee so you can see targets on the radar, but you don't know which of those radar targets is us and which is them. At some point, you say, we need to regroup, cease fire, maybe get back in formation mm-hmm. and coordinate our fire a little bit better. For better or worse, nobody heard them. Or at least <laughs> if they heard them, nobody obeyed because they didn't cease fire. I, I think I think the latter is the more appropriate answer. I, don't, so. yeah. I mean, the, the Japanese, you know, we were talking, they were so damn close mm-hmm. that I think, you know, I think it's a obviously proven thing that they did hear the order to cease fire, but they're like, no, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you can practically reach out and touch these guys are that damn close. They never really did cease fire. Scott, you know, Honestly, you would say- if, if that report went out over a TBS talk between ships, um, I, you know, it's, this is a very, very loud battle mm-hmm. too. So True. again, uh, benefit of the doubt it would be really hard to hear an order like that uh, if, to be agreed. But, agreed. But he's he's not the only guy in this war who pretended not to hear an order to disengage. So, Chesty Puller, but Chesty uh, yeah, Puller. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, but I mean, you know, you can understand the confusion. You can understand why he, as you said, was trying to get his hands on the situation. Mm-hmm. That at that time, Admiral Scott felt like was starting to slip from his control it he was it was clear mm-hmm. that we were winning at this stage but it was also clear to him that things were not what he wanted them to be mm-hmm. japanese cruiser furitaka um, took several 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 hits more than likely from san francisco and salt lake city because of the damage it was a little bit bigger than a six inch gun could inflict her turrets were hit and at least one was destroyed and she took hits in her torpedo tubes. And this is a bad thing because this ship carries the long lens torpedoes, mm-hmm. which yep. is the most powerful torpedo in the world. And they may not explode if they, but they'll burn, even if they just burn, it's really, really bad. And this is what happens here. Mm-hmm. Now that's the torpedoes are at least a launch or something is set a fire in that general vicinity. Mm-hmm. And she too becomes a beacon of light for American ships to shoot at. And they do just that very thing. Salt Lake City radar set sweeps the area at that time and detected, and this is a little bit erroneous, but she, quote, detected all enemy targets afire. Not all Japanese ships were afire, but the ones that were seen pretty much were. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing goes down. It starts rather abruptly, even though Scott knows the Japanese are coming. It starts rather abruptly, and it kind of ends pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not you know, your Jutland style all afternoon type of a thing. This is a boom and it starts and boom, it's over by zero two forty five. The battle is over mm-hmm. and <clears throat> a little more than two, almost three hours, right? Yeah. From start yeah. to finish. Yeah. And, 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 and in between there and people are thinking, wow, three hours of shooting. It wasn't three hours solid shooting. No, 
it was, there's a lot of maneuvering going on. There's a lot of, you know, it's not all constant, constant, constant fire. So mm-hmm. there is, there are breaks in the action here and there. Um, the Americans had beaten the crap out of a Japanese cruiser and destroyer force, eventually sending the cruiser Furutaka and the destroyer Fubuki to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aoba, which is Goto's flagship, was heavily damaged, but she limps away. Goto, by the way, is killed. He is killed in action here. The Japanese admiral is killed. Um, Japanese casualties are estimated to have been around 450 men killed and another 100 or so captured the next morning. And these guys that are captured are the ones that are either blown off of the ships or those that survived Yeah, the sinkings of those vessels. Um, We do not get out of this scot-free. And that... Scott Free is a poor choice in terms, seeing as how Admiral Scott was the commander, but, yeah. but that was totally unintended. Mm. But um, Bill, what what are the casualties on the United States side here? What, we, you know, we, we had a, we had 163 men killed too, and, and you know several hundred injured. So mm-hmm. yeah, we suffered. But again, 450 men killed on the Japanese side. That's you know let's just call it a three to one ratio. Yeah. Um, the ratio exchange rate was much worse during Savo with us being the losers on that side right. than in this. So this wasn't as big a victory for us as Savo was a loss, but it was a victory. And it at is. this point, we're happy to have any victory. Any victory is exactly right. Now, we and, you know, the, the personnel losses are are obviously tragic. But we also lose the destroyer Duncan. The, the Japanese mm. sink the destroyer Duncan and the cruiser Boise that we mentioned that was putting out all that lead. Uh, she's hit severely. She's hit, she's hit very hard. She takes some significant Japanese shell fire damage. I believe she takes a torpedo off the top of my head. I can't recall, but I think she does. Mm. She does not sink, but she takes heavy, heavy, heavy damage. Um, Salt Lake City is lightly damaged as is the destroyer Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit actually takes some pretty heavy damage too, but. As you were saying, uh, you know the the credit side for the United States is significantly heavy in that we we sink a couple of Japanese ships. More importantly, we turn them around. Mm-hmm. We force them to withdraw. Um, but in, while we're doing this, you know, for better or worse, the Japanese succeed in getting their troops ashore at Guadalcanal. Exactly. So the Marines do have to uh, deal with the extra troops that were that made it ashore. Mm. However, because of this victory, that faucet is slowly being turned off. Right. And the Japanese end up having to modify the tactics that they use to get further reinforcements ashore to face Marines and what would also become the Marical division that we spoke about at the beginning. Right. Right. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a hundred percent correct. And it's, it's very important. And that, you know, this is, as you were saying a minute ago, this is our first surface victory off the shores of Guadalcanal, and 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 we've and had carrier victories before, right? But this Eastern is the Thomas, first yeah. classic classic surface well, midway too for carrier victory. Oh, well, for sure. But this yeah. is the first classic old style surface ship victory, and re- revisit this crossing the T thing in in modern eras of non sailing ships. The Japanese used crossing the T tactic very effectively. In fact, it was Togo himself at the Battle of Tsushima in the Tsushima Straits in the Russo-Japanese War. Um, Jutland, you mentioned Jutland. Mm -hmm. That was a big crossing the T battle that went on for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, This one, Cape Esperance. But 
this would not be the last time we're going to see the crossing the T battle. And in fact, the most famous last, maybe the last time it's ever used is in a battle. We'll talk about the way things are going in, in an episode in three years. <laughs> when we talk about Leyte Gulf and it's the Battle of Surgao Strait. Surgao Strait, yeah. yeah, which is a cool battle. That's the revenge of the Pearl Harbor battle wagons, for those who don't yeah. know. Yeah. But Cape Esperance is, is, an, is important. And it's also not as important as we would like to believe. It's important because, A, as you were saying, it's a victory. And it is. It's mm -hmm. a clear American victory. B, we do exact some revenge for Savo Island. And and while, you know, their listeners or viewers are sitting there going, revenge, what the hell has that got to do with anything? That's huge for the sailors of the U.S. Navy right Absolutely. now, especially mm -hmm. the surface Navy, because these guys got humiliated. They got slaughtered. You know, they, they don't have a whole lot. Well, a great many of them didn't have a whole hell of a lot of faith in their leadership know, leadership after <laughs> Savo, and and you yeah. can't blame them. You know, you yeah. can't blame the guys. And this restores a lot of pride to the U.S. Navy. Admiral Scott is, you know, given the moniker of hero of the battle, and you know, I mean, he was task force commander, so he was the guy that orchestrated the vast majority of this. Even though a lot of it did start to start to slip out of his hands at one time he is responsible for it and it, and it proves this new newfangled radar these kids want to use actually works um, yeah, yeah. that's why i increasingly talk in my dotage so <laughs> and you know you're not the only one i i always say things to my wife that i hear other people say and i say as the kids say and i'm not referring exactly. to my children either but yeah but, right. but i uh it, it, admiral scott who is initially hesitant uh, about radar mm -hmm. after this becomes a big proponent of the usage of radar mm -hmm. and you're going to hear about admiral scott again in november um you're going to hear about him again other times but you're going to hear about sure. him again in november and uh, his senior officer in that battle is a guy named daniel callahan and callahan is kind of like scott was here he's not a big proponent of radar scott tries to basically make him a believer Make him a believer and mm -hmm. doesn't, doesn't work out quite that way. No. But again, back to Cape Esperance. It's it's big and then it restores a lot of the faith in American leadership, naval leadership. It, it restores pride and morale in the U.S. Navy. It does turn away this bombardment force that the Japanese are sending out here. It does not stop the troop convoy. That troop convoy does indeed unload their supplies and their people um you know up there around Taifu point or wherever it was that they that they put ashore and these guys that they unload do play a part in the battle that's coming up at the end of this month at the end of october but it was a good feeling for the u.s navy after this battle that they mm. proved that they could and indeed did beat the stuffings out of a japanese surface force here yep and we're about halfway three months into this campaign of Guadalcanal. It's going to last roughly six months. Mm -hmm. And we're now gaining confidence that we can actually succeed in resupplying the ground troops because we realize you can't win this battle without air cover, where we've got that pretty well in hand. You need control of the seas to resupply the ground troops. And we're slowly creeping back control of the seas. And then once we get those two, it's a, you know, duking it out between mm -hmm. Army and Marines. 
and the Japanese forces that are ashore in Guadalcanal. And, and, and that's and it, what, what is to come. Go yeah, on. that's exactly what is to come. And, and if you get the sense of everything that we've been talking about the last two or three episodes, you know, everything is kind of slowly building. And we always talk about the Japanese to cite the, their quest for the decisive battle. Everything is slowly building to that very thing, at least on land. You know, there are going to be, there's going to be another carrier battle in another couple of weeks at the Battle of Santa Cruz. Um, there's still some more surface shooting to do, actually quite a bit, actually, um, in, in November. You know, so there it, it's, but it's slowly building to this tipping point. Mm-hmm. You know, the campaign is building to this tipping point and, and it all starts to unfold here in the next couple of weeks, you know, as operation shoestring, as we called it, you know, yeah. it's, you know, we're getting more supplies, we're getting more people, we're getting more ships, more ships. yeah, you know, more airplanes, mm-hmm. the, the American um, industrial force is starting to show its weight here. And the thing is, is the Japanese, some of them realize it and some of them don't. And, and so they're, we're, they're determined to get it done. We're in October. What did Yamamoto say about how quickly they need to to win this war? Yeah. Six months. Six months. And we're well beyond six months at this point. Yeah, you're and at 11 Yamamoto's yeah. viewpoint, uh, this isn't the way I had planned it. Yeah. And he's, he's, he starts to push pretty hard mm-hmm. for that decisive action, which is going to come at the end of this month. So while this was a relatively quick one by our uh, recent history, <laughs> over an hour, right? That's yeah, quick for yeah. us, I guess, huh? Yeah, it, it's it's an important event, um, and it's and it's it's a fun one to talk about. At least from the United States perspective, it's a fun right. one to talk about. You know, it's a it's an event that um, frankly doesn't get as much of the limelight as Savo does for negative reasons, or the November battles do for both negative and positive reasons. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is indeed, uh, you know, one of those actions off Guadalcanal where it's, you know, it plays a role into things that follow afterwards. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill, you want to, you got anything else you want to say or are we? No, I I just, um, I just can't help but think of my uncle Joe, as we talk about this Guadalcanal battles and, and the Americal Division. He was a combat engineer, and uh, and he was one of my heroes when I was growing up. So I'm so happy we're talking about this. Well, we're going to definitely talk about talk about him and 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 the actions that his people and the United States Marine Corps did on again on Guadalcanal here in our next episode, where we talk about the climactic land battle of the of the campaign, which of course is the October battle for Henderson Field. The only, um, the only thing I'll, other thing I'll say about my Uncle Joe is. One of the reasons I was in the Navy is my Uncle Joe saying, join the Navy. You'll never have to sleep in mud. And I just remember that sense. So, um, you know, I guess he had to do a lot of sleeping in mud in, in Guadalcanal. So uh, I, I, I would imagine so. Shaped my entire future. <laughs> and I never slept in mud on my submarine. So he was right about that. Amen to that. <laughs> Well, with that, we want to thank you for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast and give us a great, give us a rating and review. And thank you to those who have done so already. We certainly do appreciate it. Also, if you want to see the video version of this and any of our other, other episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel called the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. Also, look us up on Facebook, like and subscribe to our page there as well. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, once again, my name is Seth Paradin. I want to thank you very much for listening, Bill. And I'm Bill Toady, retired Navy captain. Happy to be here. Happy you're listening. 
and take care. All right. Thank you, guys.